This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. 37% of teenage girls between 13 and 15 were exposed to unwanted nudity in a week on Instagram. You knew about it. Who did you fire? Senator, this is why we're building all the schools. Who did you fire? Schools. Senator, that's, I don't think that that's... Who did you fire? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. Because um, <laughs> I mean, you didn't is... fire anybody. Well, do you know what your kids are doing on social media? I mean, do you know what they are posting, who they are talking to? That's always the big question for parents, right? It's tough to find that out. Now, we just heard there part of Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of U.S. lawmakers last week, and they were trying to be tough on him. They were calling him on the carpet for Facebook and Instagram's lack of oversight and allowing way too many children to be taken advantage of on their platforms and for not protecting your kids. Now, here in B.C., we know Premier David Eby and his government are trying to tackle the same thing, launching a first-of-its-kind lawsuit to protect kids from exploitation. The state of New York is trying this too, but they're taking a different approach. So could we learn something from what they are doing? Let's find out. Jeffrey Horowitz is a technology reporter on meta and social media platforms for the Wall Street Journal and author of Broken Code Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. Jeff, thank you very much for being here. Uh, Jeff, do these companies like meta, do they know the negative aspects of what is going on on their platforms? Uh, I mean, at this point, certainly... Uh, that would be yes in broad strokes. Um, the companies, um, and I think Meta in particular, uh, have uh, looked pretty in-depth in at the specific design of their products. Uh, for example, with Instagram, uh, the concern was this was really going to be something that focused uh, heavily on body image and on um, sort of self-portrayal, and it was something that turned out to be fairly high risk for uh, for eating disorders and sort of negative uh, negative self-esteem. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's just sort of one sort of front of the problem. Another front, uh, as you mentioned earlier, with the parental controls is uh, child safety issues. Um, and then there are some, you know, very clear design issues that have been raised internally. Um, uh, concerns about uh, encryption, for example, and sort of why it's a thing that, uh, why it makes sense uh, for the platform to be um, encrypting communications between adults and minors, um, which is something that is planned to be rolled out sometime this year. Okay, so when you say internal discussion, so then is there a struggle even within these companies? Do Are there employees who say, listen, we need to do more? Oh, I mean, it, Yes, there are definitely employees that, that say that and that have been saying that consistently from uh, the documents that, that have been sort of taken out of, uh, out, taken, taken from the company by former employees uh, and made public. Uh, there's been some fairly strident voices and, and pretty consistently on, on a lot of these issues. I think um, one example recently came to mind was pretty much the entire safety and policy staff at Meta, um, uh, you know, Instagram, Instagram's owner, um, wanted uh, the company to ban um, uh, AI uh, sort of face filters that would um, make it appear as if people had kind of cosmetic surgery-like effects. They were overruled by the CEO of Meta, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so while there is certainly opposition and concern about some of these things, the, the company's I, I, it would be hard to say that that's been the dominant thing, certainly, in Meta. Right. So does it feel, though, that the tide is perhaps turning? That was kind of aggressive questioning, right, by lawmakers last week. Yes, although if you look in the U.S., uh, as an American, it does not bring me any joy to say this. Um, if you look in the U.S., there um, is pretty much no legislation coming out of the current Congress. Uh, and so, um, you know, how much of that was spectacle and how much of that is something that uh, is um, going to be 
know, actually seen through is a, is an open question. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why uh, various different uh, actions in other jurisdictions, um, and that would include New York, that would include, um, uh, that would include British Columbia. Um, these are, I think things are sort of bubbling up from other paths. So what is New York doing? Um, New York is trying to regulate uh, algorithm, is trying to regulate uh, uh, access to algorithmic feeds and recommendation systems. Uh, and that's something that certainly, um, you know, uh, broadly is a core feature of the product that I think gives a lot of people a little bit of um, discomfort in terms of having children being exposed to that. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, the question is basically, are you going to let the machine um, functionally make content choices and curate uh, for for minors, um, particularly without their parents' consent, and particularly given some of the evidence we've seen, both external uh, and internal, uh, that those systems do tend to uh, reinforce um, perhaps uh, issues in terms of body image or um, uh, or sort of negative social comparison among uh, young people. Right. So, there, so what New York wants to do then is to force them to no longer use the kind of algorithm that they're using? Uh, at least for, for minors. Um, certainly, uh, I mean, look... It, Facebook and Instagram used to be, you know, you'd follow your friends, you'd see their posts. Right. Um, that changed, right? They they kind of um, uh, ripped out the guts of the old system and uh, over the last decade have um, uh, really sort of emphasized um, uh, recommendations of unconnected content, right? And by unconnected content, I mean videos and images from people that you don't follow. Uh, and that, that can be higher risk. Uh, and um, it's, don't get me wrong, it's very entertaining. That's how you surface a lot of content that goes viral, but, um, but it's also uh, something that, uh, you know, there have been some qualms about. Right, but all of this, does, does any of this even, does it concern Meta at all, do you think, Jeff? I mean, you've, you've done so much work with them, like you can see how the company is thinking. Are they even worried about the way lawmakers are talking these days? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I again, I, I don't know that anyone is uh, at least uh, I don't know that anyone is betting that uh, that the lawmakers are um, going to sort of pass strict regulation at this juncture. But but that said, um, uh, Meta has been um, uh, investing in some of this stuff more and I think certainly is uh, taking child safety uh, much more seriously than it was um, perhaps a year or two ago. Right. Now, I know in your book, Broken Code, you, you kind of explored this idea of when the tide kind of turned against these companies. Is there a time when you can pinpoint it? Like, when did that happen? Um, the Internally at Meta, I think, look, the company was like very slow to recognize that there might be some bad sides to what it was building, right? For a long time, it was we connect people and connecting people's good. So everything we do is good. Um, and that, that, you know, as simplistic as that sounds, that really was coming straight from the top, sort of the, the sense of what it looked like. Um, uh, in the wake of the 2016 election, I think this was belated, there were certainly signs that not all was well before then. Uh, the company really started looking under the hood in the U.S. Uh, and trying to figure out how it had, um, uh, how it might have, it might be shaping its users' behavior. And that's something that led, um, you know, in sort of the 2017, 2018, 2019 range to the beginning of work on um, how the platforms might be pushing eating disorder content um, and, uh, you know, self-harm content. Um, And, uh, you know, sort of then uh, it'd be great to say that, that, you know, that work was finished, but... um, I think both inside the company and outside there continue to be um, new findings on a regular basis in terms of uh, uh, you know ways in which this stuff might overlap with mental health or well-being issues. Oh, it sure does. Uh, listen, Jeff, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Certainly. That's Jeffrey Horowitz, who's a technology reporter on meta and social media platforms for the Wall Street Journal, and he's written this book called Broken Code 
inside Facebook and the fight to expose its harmful secrets, like, sure, they get put on the spot, right? Mark Zuckerberg does. But does that mean they actually realize, oh, geez, maybe we should make sure kids don't get hurt by our platform? No, because they're still making money off of it. So to watch the New York lawsuit and to watch the BC lawsuit will be very, very interesting. Now, if you want to weigh in as a parent, like how closely do you monitor what your kids are doing on social media? What are the rules that you put in place? I'd love to hear that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's Friday morning, one and two. Time for us to chat with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, so I love the fact that, you know, we've seen some backtracking on this whole public consultation on the Land Act situation with the minister responsible, Nathan Cullen, but little bits of information keep coming out. Yeah, so the news media discovered that the government had launched a public consultation on major changes in the Land Act regarding co-management of crown land with Indigenous nations. So I discovered they they launched it, public consultation without mm, telling the public. Uh, There was no news release. There was no announcement to the public that this is happening. They just posted it on the Engage BC website and let people find out for themselves. And Simi, after there was some coverage making an issue of this uh, here and elsewhere, the minister came out last week and said, you know what? I wish I had been more proactive about this. You know, Nathan Cullen, he's done interviews. He said, you know, yeah, we should have we told the public about the public consultation, which is a novel idea. Anyway, uh, I've now discovered, Simi, that it turned out they did tell some people about the public consultation. They sent out advisories and invitations, not to the public, not to the news media, but to some of, uh, they call them stakeholders, but I think it would be better to characterize them as industry associations, major corporations with a stake in the economy. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have been consulted, but a uh, member of the public out there wondering why they weren't told, uh, here's who was told. So Bell, uh, Telus, BC Hydro, Fortis, Business Council of BC, Council of Forest Industries, Petroleum and Natural Gas Association, Tourism Coalition. So all, you know, as I said, these people have big stake in the economy. They have a big stake in what's happening with Crown Land. I'm not saying they shouldn't have been told, but it's interesting that the New Democrats told them and they chose not to tell the public this was happening. Okay, so what kind of engagement does the public get to have now? Well, yeah, and that's a good question, Simi, because the minister is out this week, Nathan Collin, talking about his deep engagement. He and his staff are meeting with all these industry associations and telling them where they're headed and telling them what it all means and all that, which again, that's good. But if you're a member of the public and you wanna say something about all this, you only have one option. You have to go to the Engage BC website and it's out there and you have to find this consultation and you have to click on it. And when you click on it, you will find that the government would welcome your submission on what all this means. Only written submissions are being accepted. Don't go on for more than five pages. Be careful of your use of language. And they promise they'll read your submission and take it to account when they get around to drafting the legislation and passing it later this spring. So I would say it's still not a broad public consultation the way I would define it, although it is better than when they launched it in January and didn't even tell most people about it. Okay, that, um, that's a very tight timeline, even yes. if they're just meeting with the business groups now, too, and they're drafting up the legislation. Uh, that's the other issue here. This is a rush job. So yeah. they just, they're only just now telling the public that it exists. Um, the other thing the government is doing about this, Simi, is that, I mean, the minister says originally they were going to start drafting the legislation right now. They said they were going to start drafting the legislation in mid-February, and a couple of people, me included, said, "Um, you're going to start drafting the legislation before you've completed your consultations on it. That tells me you've already made up your mind about this. 
So the minister came out and said, no, 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 that's not happening. We are going to wait till the consultation is completed on the 31st of March. So that's the end of the budget year. And only then are we going to start drafting the legislation. Well, okay, I'll take the minister's word for that, except this week, the government is circulating opinion pieces telling everyone, don't worry about this legislation. It's no big deal, right? This has all been anticipated ahead of time. It's fine. It doesn't change anything. And I'm reading these opinion pieces by some very well-intentioned people, including former BC Liberal Attorney General Jeff Plant. And I'm going, how can he be sure what's in this legislation when the minister has told us that they haven't even started drafting the legislation, unless, of course, they actually have. Because otherwise, how do you know what's in it? I mean, yeah. normally a cautious person would say, I hear the rhetoric, right? Um, you know, I, <laughs> Simi, one of the greatest trainers I've had in news media was Barbara McClintock, the legendary, yes. now sadly departed reporter and columnist for the province. And I had only been at the legislature a year or two when she said to me, do not listen to what the minister says is going to be in the legislation. Do not listen to what the press release says is in the legislation. Read the legislation. And that, my advice, including to these very well-intentioned people out there who were saying this is no big deal and don't worry about it, no story here, I think I'll wait to mm -hmm. read the legislation before I reach that conclusion. Good. It sounds like you'll be able to read it soon, too. Um, Vaughn, there is more provincial politics to break down for you, including a pretty big announcement that Premier David Eby made yesterday about housing, Vaughn. Yes. So January of last year, David Eby announced that the government was taking $500 million out of the big budget surplus that existed then and putting it into a rental protection fund. That fund would allow the purchase of rental buildings that were in danger of being torn down or renovicted and taken off the rental housing market. Um, and that was the whole uh, gist of the announcement. It's taken a while, but we got the first purchase yesterday. So two... Uh, condominium buildings, uh, sorry, co-op buildings in Coquitlam, um, 290 units of housing semi, and it's interesting, they put out the numbers for what this purchase has cost. So it's taking $71 million out of the rental housing fund. And, you know, you do the math and you go, that fund's going to be exhausted pretty quickly. Uh, that's $265,000 a unit. So... If all the other units cost that much, it'll be probably two thousand uh, dollars. Sorry, two thousand units uh, will be gone before uh, by the time the fund is exhausted. Uh, premiers asked about that. They were asked about it, and they said, "Well, you know, we're using it for leverage. That's true, Simi. Um, the the fund seventy one million dollars is covering only part of the cost of buying uh, these two buildings." I mean, the, the intentions here are very, very good, but I know to the listener that half a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but in the BC housing market, even buildings as old as this, and they're 40 years old, that's pretty expensive, $265,000 a unit just for that, $430,000 a unit for the whole package. It's clear this fund is going to need a top up very quickly unless the government is intending just this is going to be a drop in the bucket. Right. And this has been an ongoing issue for years now, the concern about these co-ops, which were very popular and most, a lot of them built in the 1970s, right, with the help of the federal yeah. government, and now they're aging out. Yeah, you know, that's true, Simeon. I thought one of the most interesting things they said yesterday was these were purchased on a 41-year lease or a 40-year lease, and the, the time is up. Uh, but people are still living there. They're still very, very affordable, and the big issue for the, you know, for the people living there is, hey, they were looking at essentially losing their place. So, yes, there's a bunch of these in the province and someone's going to have to step in and bail them out or they're not going to be affordable. And so, I mean, the other issue is these are old buildings. They're 40 years old and still live in them. But 
there's going to be a, an increasing issue of maintenance and upkeep. And the premier was asked about that yesterday too, is, you know, will there be an ongoing subsidy to deal with the operating costs? Because if the operating costs aren't subsidized, the people living there are going to be looking at rent increases. And that, of course, means they won't be affordable anymore. Well, the premier said, no, this is one-time funding, no subsidies. Um, that gave me pause because the housing minister announced in the House last year that the government would be providing a million dollars a year for every 400 units to cover repair and upkeep. Of course, someone's got to do it. The tenants can't. So the premier was asked about that. And as I said to me, he said, no, no, no subsidies. So I asked the ministry and they confirmed yes. Yes, the government is providing a fund of $5 million over three years, so spread out. But when you drill down, it's about a million dollars for every 400 units they buy uh, to cover maintenance and upkeep. And they said in the press release, you're going to love this. They said, that's not a subsidy. Don't think of that as a subsidy. Oh, really? And so the ongoing... <laughs> So we've got a consultation that didn't consult the public and a subsidy that isn't a subsidy. And I've got the words of Humpty Dumpty run, run, running around in my head. And he said, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, <laughs> neither more nor less. I've never heard Humpty Dumpty quoted on the radio before quite in that way, Vaughn. So congratulations on that one. Hey, we do the village people. We do Alice in Wonderland. We do, we do whatever suits the moment. We certainly do. Okay, so there's more to come on that one. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. All right, run away in Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Kind of run out of words to describe what is happening in the United States. And like every week, every Friday morning at this time, we talk to Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. And Reggie, to be honest, I don't know what to say anymore because every week it just seems to get stranger. It does, uh, but that's American <laughs> politics. So true. That is American politics. So let's let's break this down. We'll start the two major candidates for president this fall. Let's start on the Donald Trump side here because uh, there's a lot of stuff that went on in court this week. Sure. Uh, there were two big things that went on in court. Number one, uh, Donald Trump was told by an appeals court here in the District of Columbia that he does not have any kind of shield from prosecution, uh, pushing back on this fight that his legal team said that he had presidential immunity to, to fight the, the J6 charges and the, sub, uh, the election subversion charges. We have to wait to see if he's going to appeal that. He has until Monday to do that. And then yesterday we had the Supreme Court case about uh, whether or not he can appear on ballots in the upcoming primary season. What was interesting about this, when we talked yesterday, this had just been getting underway. 24 hours later, or just about 24 hours later, the entire bench, including some of the liberal appointed justices, uh, they all appeared to be on Trump's side, that one state shouldn't be allowed to make a determination of who's eligible. Okay, but this is just one of the cases, right? Well, it is just one of the cases, but the Colorado case is important because it's the first. And we know that in Maine, the state had said that he would be ineligible to be on the ballot pending a Supreme Court decision. And knowing that we're likely going to get something in the next couple of weeks here, if the court sides with Donald Trump and allows him to stay on Colorado's ballot, that essentially puts an end to it and he'll be on ballots around the country. If they go in the other direction, that's copycat litigation. But based on the arguments and the response yesterday, this is a court that appears to be more on the side with with Trump than they do with Colorado. Interesting. Okay, now let's talk about the race for the Republican nomination, because normally, Reggie, when we get to the state of Nevada, not a huge amount of attention is paid to it in terms of the primary. But this year, that is not the case, all because there actually wasn't a name on the ballot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, the way that Nevada did it this year is is different. They typically used to have a caucus. They decided to go by way of doing a primary this year, but that leaves it more open to a potential different outcome than what Republicans may have wanted because, uh, you know, with a caucus, which was held last night, it's a defined time. You have to be in a defined place, uh, and it can be difficult for people to show up. Still, that was a, a way to keep Donald Trump as a winner. So what did the GOP do? They, they allowed the primary to take place on Tuesday. Nikki Haley was the 
the main name on that ticket. She didn't win because most people checked none of the candidates that are listed on this ticket. Um, and then at the pro- at the caucus last night, Donald Trump won because that was what was expected. He was one of the only people that were running in that caucus. And the GOP changed the rules, said only the caucus winner would be the one that matters and, and take away the delegates. So, I mean, it's a bit of a political mess. Yeah, but that sounds so bizarre. It's, it's confusing and it left people had to have to go and vote twice in the same race. But ultimately, it allowed for the GOP to give Donald Trump another victory. And what does that do? It now gives Nikki Haley her third loss heading into her home state of South Carolina later this month. Right, because it's about the perception, isn't it? Like the momentum and all of that, Reggie, because if if you said three in a row now that she has lost, she's not really getting that momentum. No, she's not. And I mean, she's, she's, she's not dropping out. I mean, she's remaining a thorn in the side of the Trump campaign. And what's that doing? It's forcing them to focus on Nikki Haley more than it is forcing him to force focus on uh, on Donald Trump. But ultimately, I mean, in order to win the presidency, um, money matters. And and if you don't have victories, you are going to start losing donors. And if you start losing donors, you have an inability to pay for your staff on the campaign trail. So we're approaching a point of where Nikki Haley is going to have to likely make a decision here. The question is, does it happen before South Carolina or after a potential small or big loss? Right. And clearly the Trump campaign would love to focus their attention not on Nikki Haley, but more or on President Joe Biden, because there's a lot of material to work with. Have a listen to this. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. It's kind of angry Joe Biden there, Reggie. What was going on? So, I, I, look, the, the he was under investigation for his uh, alleged mishandling of classified documents. And the special counsel who did the investigation is a Republican-appointed prosecutor. And he came out to say, look, there was willful negligence here in the way that Biden did this. But because he cooperated, he's cleared of all charges. Also worth pointing out, you can't charge a sitting president, but that's beside the point. Inside this, you know, 400-page report, there were some pretty big digs at Biden's mental acuity, where at one point... The the investigator says if we present him to a jury, they may be sympathetic because he's a well-meaning uh, elderly man with a poor memory. It's it's a gratuitous Ooh, point to put inside a report. It's unnecessary. Um, like and people kind of, don't know how old Joe Biden is. Like, yeah, that's already it, what they make fun of him for. Yeah. But look, the investigator also made points during this report that that Biden you know, was forceful in his responses and he, he made a couple of mistakes. But the point is, that's what's being picked up on now. And you have Republicans and some Democrats saying, look, Biden's age is a vulnerability and he's it's exposed in this report. And then yesterday, last night, when he came out to talk about the, the clearing in that report, he dipped into foreign policy and he confused the leaders of Mexico and oh. Egypt. Uh, and, and it kind of walked back everything that he'd been trying to put forward. So this is now a hurdle for the Biden campaign to clear Joe Biden of, of this kind of potential liability in being his age that was highlighted in a report that Donald Trump is seizing on to say, look at the double standard here. He's not getting charged. I was indicted. Yeah. What is the deal then with the classified documents? Does nobody in the United States know how to deal with classified documents? It would it would appear not. Uh, I mean, look, Biden says that this was from when he was vice president. They were personal notes. It was it was accidental. The big difference here is it's the same situation. Documents are documents. But Joe Biden fully cooperated with investigators. Donald Trump obstructed uh, and lied through his law lawyers to stop investigators from getting into Mar-a-Lago. So it's two of the same stories with two very different approaches, which is why Donald Trump faced indictment. Joe Biden, who knows if he wasn't the president, would he be facing potential charges? That's an open question because, again, you can't charge a sitting president. Right. Boy, it seems like these two cases are kind of almost blending together now, aren't they? They are. And, and it's it's adding to that reality here when Americans say we don't like either of these candidates. We don't want a Biden Trump rematch. And now you have this point of where Biden and Trump are facing similar issues with age and with 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 scandals. Um, you know, and, and the big question is going to be in November. Is that going to impact turnout? Oh, boy. It just makes your job more interesting. I'm Reggie. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We keep hearing that we have more family doctors in BC, right? Changes to the payment model in this province has actually brought an increase in the number of doctors who are choosing to be in family practice. We just heard that story in the news, right? But it's coming at a cost. It is costing us more money. But these are the numbers. That is data. What is the reality? Have you been able to find a family doctor? Because that is the thing that's going to make a difference. And if you've written me in the past year or two and we've talked about this, I would love to get an update. Are you able to find a family doctor? Simi at cknw.com. Because now we're also hearing about burnout. A lot of family doctors are experiencing burnout. And that is adding to the challenge of trying to keep up with finding more family doctors. Our next guest has been writing about this, actually. Samia Madwar is a managing editor for The Walrus and joins us now. Samia, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How big of a problem is burnout for family doctors? Um, I mean, there have been studies. This is not new, of course. Um, There have been various reports and surveys that have shown that um, over the past couple of years. Um, But, uh, you know, one person that I talked to, for instance, um, you know, the same year that she left her practice, the College of Family Physicians, uh, this was 2022, the College of Family Physicians um, published the results of a survey in which half of the respondents reported feeling exhausted or burnt out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's there are various other studies that show similar figures that there is a certain percentage of family doctors that just feel like they just, you know, are either exhausted or are considering leaving the profession. And what is contributing to that? Are they overworked? Are they just too many patients? What's happening? It's a combination of things. What several people told me was that it's not just a question of workload. Workload is definitely part of it, um, but it was really, you know, one part, one big part of their workload that a lot of people weren't being compensated for um, was administrative work, which just added up to hours and hours in their day. Um, and there are various studies that show different numbers, but for one, for one example was uh, a study that showed that for every hour that doctors spent seeing patients, they spent two hours doing administrative work that they weren't compensated for. Um, of course, uh, BC changed its um, uh, re- remuneration model last year so that doctors are now just paid for every hour of work that they do, whether they're seeing patients or doing administrative work, um, which uh, which has largely been positive, as you noted. Um, but there is also just this idea that a lot of family doctors are basically running an independent business, you know, and so that means that they also have to pay for other costs, um, like administrative support, you know, leasing their space. Um, And so in order to keep up with costs, they basically just have to take on more patients. And that means spending less time with each patient. And one major cause of burnout that a lot of people told, talked to me about was that they felt they weren't able to do as much for their patients as they'd like. They, you know, they left each appointment feeling like, oh, I wish I could have had a few extra minutes to just give them a little bit more attention. Um, And it was that that was really weighing them down. And so when you looked at this then, were there particular provinces where the problem was worse? Um, I mean, it it was a range. A lot of the people I talked to were in Ontario. um, And so it was a major problem here. But a lot of people pointed to the fact that um, BC was trying uh, something different with with, uh, with paying doctors differently. Um, But one other major, like, main solution that a lot of people have talked about is implementing more team-based practices and, you know, different provinces and, and um, uh, territories have, have tried different things, but um, Ontario has really been championing this idea of the team-based practice, um, among other provinces, in which, uh, you know, doctors can share the patient load. So if they take some time off, there is someone to cover for them. But also, you know, after they see a patient, they can also refer them to uh one of their colleagues, a physiotherapist, for instance, or a, a dietitian um, or a nurse practitioner to follow up on their care. And so they don't feel like they're doing everything on their own. Right. Our governments, because as you noted in your article too, I mean, this is a huge cost, right? It's not easy to yeah. turn over something like that on a dime in the healthcare system. So are provinces kind of willing to do this? Um that's a huge question that <laughs> um, the article doesn't go into as much. And, and um, you know, I did that very intentionally to really focus on the causes of, of burnout. Um, that's a huge question. And, and one of the doctors that I spoke with um, said, you know, the, the problem is that 
it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of time, more importantly, to see the results. And the quote that really stood out to me that that, uh, ended up in the article is um, the time that it takes to see the results doesn't fit a political cycle. So So a government that pledges, you know, more money um, to address this problem now might not see tangible results for a few years. And so it would be, you know, hard for them to justify that. So um, this is kind of the problem is it takes a lot of money, but it also takes time. It must be so disheartening for some of these doctors that you spoke to that, you know, they spend all these years in school, they go into family practice. And now feeling like they're just done. And and part of that is is not it's not just you know the feeling that they have now. Part of um, what I write about in this piece is um, just this um, what's known as the hidden curriculum in medicine. It's all of these things that aren't necessarily part of the the formal curriculum, but all of these things that that um, students are taught. One of them is just this attitude towards family medicine that is kind of um, the you know it's because it's not seen as specialization. It's not seen as being as sophisticated as, um, for instance, becoming a surgeon. And so one of the doctors that I talked to, for instance, said, you know, she kept hearing throughout medical school, uh, people asking her, oh, so you just want to be a family doctor. Um, And so this kind of feeling of being lesser than, which several people described to me, is kind of baked in. Um, And so they even enter their careers feeling like they're not doing enough. And so they're always overworking themselves to prove their value. And I think that's a big part of what's also fueling this burnout. Mm, So interesting. Samia, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's Samia Madwar, who's a managing editor for The Walrus and has written extensively about the burnout problem with family physicians, something they're seeing all across Canada. But BC is also doing things differently here. She noted that we are investing, right, in all these different things, like that that Health Connect program. We're trying to connect people to a family doctor, uh, incentivizing it, really providing more incentives for doctors to choose family practice, like really upping the fee payment model, as Samia noted, is it paying them for their administrative time as well as their patient seeing time, just paying them essentially for being a doctor, not just for seeing patients, which means that, you know, they can, they can do more. They have more an incentive to get all that done and, and really helping them to streamline their practices too, to take some of the administrative work away from them. But that doesn't, you know, that's all good. That's all well and good, but it doesn't matter to you unless you can get a family doctor. So I think we're, we're going to explore this a little bit more, but I would love to hear from you because every time we have talked about this in the past couple of years, I have heard from so many people who have said, can't do this. My doctor retired, can't get another doctor. And so I'm wondering, it's been about a year now since BC announced all these changes. Have you noticed any difference? Has anything improved for you? Do you now have a family doctor? This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard of Moira? Moira is a loggerhead turtle found recently suffering hypothermia on Vancouver Island. Well, what makes Moira so special? Well, really, because she wasn't supposed to be there. The last time a loggerhead turtle was spotted in BC was way back in 2015. So why is she here and what can we take from this? What does it mean? Well, Dr. Anna Hall is a marine mammal zoologist. She rescued Moira, actually, and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. How is Moira doing? Well, um, as of yesterday, she was doing very, very well and um, still in recovery from her hypothermia, but moving in the right direction. I have to ask you, Dr. Hall, how does a turtle get hypothermia? (laughs) Well, she is supposed to be in warmer waters than here. Um, These turtles are found generally south of our area. Um, As you mentioned, there has been one other confirmed sighting back in 2015. This is the second ever confirmed sighting. And she was just in waters that were too cold. Okay, but how can you tell if a turtle has hypothermia? Like if I were to stumble across another Moira, how would I know? Well, that's a good question. And when we first sighted her, her movements were very slow. Uh, for By and large, she was mostly just floating at the surface. Um, and then one thing that we did notice was she was she was moving with the current. So she was just she just looked very lethargic. And that was, in fact, the assessment that we made in the field and that I relayed to DFO and Marine Mammal Rescue that initiated the response. Okay, and so did you know what to do? Because this must be a bit of a rare situation. 
<laughs> well, I've been involved in um, marine mammal strandings for quite some time on the BC coast. This was my first turtle. Um, and I have to say, it wasn't just me. There was a whole team of people that some of us didn't even know each other at the time, but we just came together and everybody cooperated. Um, you know, my, my husband made a stretcher out of a wheelbarrow Aww, and some seat cushions. <laughs> Uh, and, and two other fellows, Sean Hutchinson, who was the, the, the guy who initially cited Moira. And uh, it turns out we have a mutual friend, Brian Hornavia. We all just came together and helped lift this turtle out of the ocean, um, put it on the back deck of uh, our boat and brought her into Petter Bay. Okay, so that's all the good stuff, right? We're glad that Moira's doing well. But now let's talk about the fact that she was here. What does that tell us? Well, that, that's a good question, and that's one that we, we don't know the answer to. We can only speculate. Um, was she riding a warm current and just ended up in, you know, gradually waters that got too cold, and she herself slowly got too cold? And, and, and just so you understand how cold is cold, her core temperature when she arrived at Marine Mammal Rescue on um, Sunday night was 8.5 degrees. She should be between 22 and 26 she oh was goodness. very, very cold. Yes. And in fact, the seawater where we picked her up was only 10 degrees. So she was very cold. Um, maybe she was an adventurer. Maybe she just got lost. Um, you know, things, things can happen out there in the ocean. We really don't understand how she got here. We do know it's very rare. Okay. So does that mean that maybe there have been other cases of this and we just didn't know and we didn't find examples? That's certainly possible. There are turtle sightings of unconfirmed species uh, that do occur from time to time in BC. However, given the number of mariners that are out in BC waters, particularly in the nearshore region, um, it seems very likely that had there have been other turtles, maybe not all would have been seen, but some could have been seen. Um, she is the first sighting ever in the near shore waters of BC. And I do believe I've spent, I've spent decades at sea here, never seen one here. It's, it is definitely a rare event. Wow. Okay. So then they're endangered, right? And why is that? They are endangered, and that is a sad state of our oceans for sea turtles. Um, it often comes down to bycatch, uh, entanglement in fishing gear, uh, destruction of the nesting beaches, and, of course, the, the ever-present ingestion of plastics. So what can be done to protect them, or what is being done to help them? Well, there are a number of initiatives around the world. Generally, they're in tropical locations or, or subtropical locations to restore nesting beaches. Um, we do know that there's poaching in some areas of, of not only the, the turtle eggs, but the turtles themselves. Bycatch is a significant issue for virtually all marine creatures, if, except for those that live, well, perhaps even those that live on the seafloor. Um, that would be one of the single greatest things we could do to protect marine life would be to eliminate bycatch in, in indiscriminate fisheries. They are highly destructive. Um, and, of course, uh, simply working on direct issues that relate to individual species. If there are specific beaches, mm-hmm. protect those for those animals. What's going to happen to Moira? Well, Moira was, uh, as of yesterday evening when I got an update, she was continuing to warm and continuing to do well. All being well, as long as uh, the incredible care team at Marine Mammal Rescue is, uh, is you know, happy with her condition. With any luck today, she will be moved into a warm water uh, enclosure so that she can practice swimming again. Because when she, got, when she was taken into care, she was not able to swim anymore. She was just too cold. So um, she's not out of the woods yet, as, as I was told yesterday by Marie Memo Rescue, but she's progressing in the right direction. And with any luck, she'll keep going and be returned to her natural habitat. Oh, that would be nice. I'd love to get the update. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for talking about Moira. Well, what a story Moira's had there. That is Dr. Uh, that's Dr. Anna Hall, marine mammal zoologist who rescued Moira, the loggerhead turtle, rare sighting of a loggerhead turtle here in the near coastal waters of BC. Uh, in fact, this is only the second time and Moira was the closest that they've come to actually seeing one of these endangered loggerhead turtles. So yes, we wish Moira a speedy recovery. This is Mornings with Simi. 
What is going on with policing these days? I mean, first there is the kind of chaos and uncertainty of the situation in Surrey, right? Will it be the RCMP or will it be the Surrey Police Service? And now even in Vancouver, we're hearing about some issues. It started with the very sudden resignation of a high-profile member of the police board, Faye Whiteman. Why did she quit? Well, she said the board has structural flaws. She's alleging political interference from the mayor's office, and the mayor is the head of the police board, same as in Surrey. So is it time to change that? Is it time to take mayors out of policing? And and what's the problem there? Well, joining us now to talk more about this idea is Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor for the Green Party. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Cindy. So why do you think this is problematic? Uh, well, you know, in this particular case, and I, I honestly can't speak to the Surrey situation. It's confusing to me. I think it's probably confusing to a lot of people. Oh, to all of us. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. But but for Vancouver, which is my job, uh, certainly we're, we're hearing some pretty disturbing allegations. You know, this is uh, the second resignation from the police board uh, in less than a year. Uh, and, and the most recent one, Faye Whiteman, is a highly respected and very experienced uh, board director who's worked with you know major nonprofit boards and and led in, in governance and leadership for decades, and uh, when she you know uh, alleges that a, a neophyte mayor has come in and basically overstepped good good governance at the police board um, and inserted his chief of staff into closed meetings and you know allegedly uh, uh, tried to influence the outcomes. And has has leveled some pretty serious allegations um, that she's suggesting that this is undue political influence in the police board. And, you know, unlike the United States, um, we have a very distinct sort of separation of politics and policing. Now, I know folks have pointed out that the, that this mayor, uh, Ken Sim, was endorsed by the Vancouver Police Union, which is certainly unprecedented. But I think this is something different. This isn't about an endorsement from the police. This is about actual direct alleged direct political interference in in police board operations, which is a significant part of our budget. Uh, and, and more importantly, um, you know, policing in our in our in our country holds a, 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 a huge responsibility. And and I think, um, you know, for the integrity of the, the, the hardworking uh, police officers in Vancouver and the, and the integrity of of the reputation of policing and to ensure that it is impartial and it is not operating at the behest or request of, of some back rumor in the mayor's office, I think it's important to have that transparency. So coming back to what the province has proposed to intervene, the, the, we had a, a police act review in British Columbia uh, last year that, or that culminated last year that had a series of recommendations. And one of the top ones was to eliminate mayors as appointed police board chairs, uh, presumably because of this uh, inference that there is, the potential for undue political interference. And, and you know, so I take the right. allegations quite seriously and I support the province's uh, direction. I understand the premier said yesterday that the, the solicitor general is looking at possibly even bringing something forward in the spring legislature to, to, to actually make a move on the police act and remove mayors from the boards. Okay, so Councillor Fry, maybe you could explain to people, because not everybody is up on the ins and outs of how this works, right? So how does the system here work? The mayor is the head of the police board. What does that mean? What what does the police board do in turn, and how does that impact the whole situation? Well, you know, nominally, the police board chair as mayor is is a non-functional role. Certainly uh, in my term, last last term with Kennedy Stewart, he said that basically all he ever did was just sort of chair meetings. He had no decision-making powers. And indeed, to the letter of the law, uh, the mayor's really only empowered to break a tie vote at police board. The allegations from uh, Ms. Whiteman um, suggest that the mayor's uh, using more influence um, behind the scenes, and in particular, having his political staff exert influence, showing up at closed meetings, uh, and and and. Again, you know, it's a little light on details, but the allegations in and of themselves, I think, probably require a deeper investigation, which we're not going to have, obviously, if the mayor is the chair of the same board that over, so and, and responsible for his own oversight. If the idea is that the elected mayor is there just to, you know, provide the last thing or to have some just the governance issue, why is the person there to begin with? And why do we need to have a mayor on the police board? Well, and I think that's the, that's what the Police Act review came back and said, yeah, I don't think we actually need a mayor. 
to have a police. So the Police Act is a provincial legislation that, that basically says that all local governments across British Columbia of a certain population size need to uh, ensure that they have a police force that is appropriate and adequate to, you know, preserve public safety and that kind of thing. So that's so we are obliged to have a police force. Um, and, you know, and, and my joke at council has always been that, you know, we, we just sign the checks. We have absolutely, as councillors in the city of Vancouver, you know, policing represents a significant chunk of our budget, but we have absolutely no say in operational or oversight at all. But that isn't, is the, isn't the idea, the board. yeah, but isn't that the idea then accountability, that if the police board is supposed to be overseeing the police, um, where do where does the public have accountability into those decisions if, if they're all appointed and there's nobody elected? Well, they're appointed by the province at this point. And, you know, we have the uh, appointment by the city who, you know, um, the most recent one is, is you know, a, a supporter of the mayor and would arguably be considered maybe an insider in the, in the, in, in the mayor's office or, or his political party. So I think that that points to, you know, a fundamental flaw as well. Now, I don't think we should go the way of, say, you know, a lot of American cities where we elect a police board have a separate elected thing i think that opens up a, a whole different can of worms and i think that there is there should be a duty of some kind of integrity and i think that we've seen a history of appointments to the police board particularly from the province that are that are not political uh, especially but are you know really focusing on good governance and oversight and i think that that needs to be the sort of imperative when we're talking about what uh, and who is on the police board is it is there a way for city council to even get questions answered? Is there a way for the public to get questions answered? Do you go to the police board? How accountable is it? I mean, you, public are welcome to attend police board meetings, but uh, apparently a large portion of the police board meetings happen in in, in camera or, or closed meeting, um, and so the public aren't privy to that. Nor am I as a city councilor. I have very little access to this, and and the allegations. Uh, from Ms. Whiteman and others are that, that that what's happening is happening in these closed meetings behind closed doors uh, where there is no public scrutiny. And, and I think that's the more disturbing issue that, um, you know, and this is a pattern that we've seen with the mayor's uh, staff uh, and his, the mayor's office inserting themselves uh, and kind of writing their own rules and not playing sort of by the regular rules. And this is an increasing pattern that we're seeing, you know, be it from, Park board from their campaign financing um, and just the, just the nature of backroom decision making that we're seeing of late in this last or in this first year, I should say. Well, Councillor Fry, thanks so much. You've given us a lot to think about. Appreciate that. All right. Have, have a good day. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor for the Green Party. They, they would like to see, he would like to see the provincial government remove mayors from uh, the uh, police boards. That's the case in Vancouver. It's in Surrey. Is it necessary to have the mayor there? It's t- it's tough, right? Because when you do think about it, it's, it's accountability. There is good to have an elected person on that police board. But where does it run into trouble? Well, that's kind of what we're seeing at the Vancouver Police Board right now. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.